When we gazed upon all this splendor at once, we scarcely knew what to think, and we doubted whether all that we beheld was real. A series of large towns stretched themselves along the banks of the lake, out of which still larger ones rose magnificently above the waters. Innumerable crowds of canoes were plying everywhere around us. At regular distances, we continually passed over new bridges, and before us lay the great city of Mexico in all its splendor. Those are the words of Bernal Diaz del Castillo, a Spanish soldier, upon first seeing the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan in 1519. At the time, the Aztec Empire was the most powerful Mesoamerican kingdom of all time, with 80,000 square miles of territory and some 15 million inhabitants. Just two years later, the empire would crumble, utterly defeated by European forces staking a claim for Spain. But did you know the leader of this exploit, Hernán Cortés, had defied Spanish authority and run off to conquer the Aztecs with less than 500 soldiers? Let's fix that. Hello, I'm Shay LaFontaine, and you're listening to History Fix, where I discuss lesser-known true stories from history you won't be able to stop thinking about. This week, we're talking about the defeat of the Aztec Empire by Spanish forces in 1521. This seems like an inspiring underdog story. Less than 500 men? Wow! How? What an incredible feat! Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but I want to make it clear from the very start that this episode will not be glorifying Cortez or any of his actions. But on the flip side, I'm not going to be glorifying the Aztecs either. This story involves two villainous forces colliding and unfortunately leaving a trail of destruction in their wake that has carried on to the modern day. So this story does not have a happy ending, but it is super interesting, and there are so very many misconceptions and just really false narratives to address. So here we go. Let's go to Mexico first. Before the rise of the Aztecs, there were many different indigenous groups living in the area that is today Mexico and Central America. By the mid-1400s, the Aztecs had conquered many of their neighbors and formed an alliance with two other cities in the region, Texcoco and Tlacopan. This was called the Triple Alliance. But eventually, the Aztecs dominated the alliance and really ruled alone over a collection of groups with different languages and cultures. The Aztec capital was called Tenochtitlan, and it was located in modern-day Mexico City, beneath modern-day Mexico City, really. This is where the Aztec emperor controlled the empire, receiving tribute from 489 different tribal communities. The Aztecs were fierce warriors and accomplished engineers, artisans, and agriculturalists. Their city was incredible. It was super advanced and really quite shocking to the Europeans who expected to find nothing but savages in this untamed new world. When the Spanish first arrived in Tenochtitlan in 1519, it had around 300,000 residents. It was situated on a man-made island in the middle of Lake Texcoco. So, <laughs> that says a lot. A freaking man-made island 
500 years ago. There are no bulldozers and whatever you even use to make islands these days. We're talking about some serious ingenuity, technological advances, and just pure manpower. Tenochtitlan was the central hub of the empire, with gardens and palaces, temples, and raised roads with bridges that connected the city to the mainland. I'm getting Atlantis vibes, for real. The Spanish were in awe of what they saw. Now, let's go to Spain. What's happening in Spain? Well, in 1492, the Spanish monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella sent Italian explorer Christopher Columbus to discover a westward route to India. Because spices are a big deal, right? Spices are yummy, and that makes them valuable, I guess. Whatever. It's it's too hard to get to India over land. So Ferdinand and Isabella are like, it's just over there, just on the other side of that water. You got this. But he did stumble upon the American continents, which would become much more of a treasure than Spain ever thought possible, in the most horrendous way possible. When Columbus was setting off on this grand adventure, Hernán Cortés was just seven years old, the son of noble parents, though not overly wealthy. Cortés was later described by his secretary as ruthless, haughty, mischievous, and quarrelsome. So yeah. I don't know. Those aren't great adjectives. Cortez was sent to study law at the age of 14, but found it way boring, as any 14-year-old would, and craved adventure. He was fascinated by the tales he'd heard of Christopher Columbus in the New World. And when he was 19, he set off himself toward the Caribbean. Eventually, he joined up with Diego Velasquez and helped him conquer Cuba, which was then occupied by at least two major Native American groups, the Taino and the Guanajuato Bay. I'm just going to do my best with the pronunciation. Please forgive me. Cortez became the mayor of Santiago, which was the capital of Cuba before Havana. He then purchased enslaved people and forced them to work the land he had acquired, making him quite rich. Haughty indeed. But Being mayor of stolen territory and owning human beings wasn't enough for power-hungry Cortez. He convinced Velasquez, who was now the governor of Cuba, to let him go on a plundering mission to Mexico on the mainland. He wanted to claim more land for Spain, convert the indigenous people to Christianity, and take all of their gold and riches. But really, he wanted to earn himself some honor and glory as a great conquistador. At first, Velasquez is like, okay, I mean, I guess. But later he changes his mind and cancels the mission. Like, I don't know, man, you're way too haughty and quarrelsome. I don't see this going well. But Cortez does not take no for an answer. In 1519, he organizes his own crew of 450-ish soldiers, 100 sailors, and 16 horses, and sets off. So he's gone rogue. He's completely defying the orders of the government and therefore the king. There are accounts that upon arriving on the southeastern coast of Mexico, which he names Veracruz, there are accounts that Cortez burns all of his ships so that his men can't turn back. But that's probably totally false. I mean, that would be really dumb, right? In reality, he most likely dismantled them and carried any valuable parts with him to repurpose later. So let's just pause there for a minute. The Spanish have knowledge of the Aztec Empire. They've glimpsed it, at least, in bits and pieces throughout their exploring. Cortez knows what he's up against. So what the heck? What does this guy think he's going to accomplish with 450 soldiers and 16 horses? There's no backup coming. He's not even supposed to be doing this. He's basically a traitor at this point, a mutineer, 
Well, he has a particular strategy in mind. You see, the way the Aztecs rose to power, the way they maintained their dominance over all these different indigenous groups would end up being their greatest weakness. They demanded tribute. That's how they stayed on top. All these different groups had to pay tribute to the emperor in Tenochtitlan financially, but also with human lives because human sacrifice for religious ceremony was a thing in Aztec culture. According to Spanish accounts, it was actually quite a grisly ritual. A priest would slice open the chest of a sacrificial victim while they were still alive using a sharpened obsidian blade. The heart was ripped out, still beating, and then the body was tossed down the many stairs of the Templo Mayor, leaving a trail of bright red blood against the white stone. Later, the skulls of sacrificial offerings were stacked into two towers on either side of the temple, and between them, a wooden rack displayed thousands more skulls. For a long time, historians doubted whether this Spanish account was true. They thought it was most likely exaggerated as a way of justifying the atrocities the Spanish committed against the Aztecs. That is, until the skull towers and skull rack were actually discovered in 2015. Aztec human sacrifice was real, and they did it on a potentially massive scale. A reported 80,400 men, women, and children were sacrificed for the inauguration of the Templo Mayor in 1487. So all of these indigenous groups had to pay with money and with lives or face serious punishment. This is not a peaceful society. Cortez knows there's trouble in paradise. Many of these groups under Aztec control resent it, and some are willing to ally themselves with the Spanish in order to bring down the empire. That's Cortez's master plan. He's going to turn the empire's own subjects against it to weaponize them. He only has 450 soldiers, but they have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And unlike the Spanish, they understand the Aztec culture, language, and warfare. They are his secret weapon. When he first arrived on the Yucatan Peninsula, a group of indigenous people told him about some Europeans who had been shipwrecked and taken prisoner by the Mayas. Now, I want to just briefly point out that the Maya civilization sort of collapsed on its own before the Europeans arrived. They were in a bit of a post-apocalyptic slump at the time, but they did still exist in parts of Mexico and Central America. And actually, they still do to this day as well. I'm going to save the Mayas for their own episode, though, because I can't do that story justice as a footnote to this one. But Cortez learns that the Mayas had captured a handful of Spanish people who were shipwrecked about eight years ago. Only two of them were still alive, Geronimo de Aguilar, who was a priest, and Gonzalo Guerrero, who was a soldier. Guerrero had completely assimilated with the Mayans, taken a Maya wife, had Maya children. He went full Maya, and he had no interest in returning to his previous life as a Spaniard. Aguilar had learned the language and the culture like Guerrero, but still clung to his Spanish roots and was more than happy to go along with Cortez. So Aguilar speaks fluent Mayan, and this is important. They're roaming around Mexico, battling indigenous groups as they go, but also earning their allegiance as allies against the Aztecs. At one point, an Aztec chief gifted them 20 enslaved Maya women. 
This is the world in which our story takes place, y'all. A true nightmare of a world. The giant douche and the turd sandwich, for real though, with the Aztecs and the Spanish. I don't even know who's worse. It's probably the Spanish. But anyway, they get these 20 indigenous women gifted to them. One of them, named Malinali, is of particular interest to Cortez. She speaks the Aztec language and the Mayan language. And then remember, he has Aguilar, who speaks Spanish and the Mayan language. So between these two, they can pretty much communicate with anyone they encounter. Malinali is much more than a translator to Cortez, though. She converts to Christianity and takes the name Doña Marina, but is usually called La Malinche. Actually, all 20 of the enslaved women Cortez was given were named Marina, which weird and confusing. But she's Doña Marina, which means Lady Marina, because of the high status she will achieve. She became Cortez's mistress because, of course, why not? And they also have a child together, a son named Martin. Despite the fact that Cortez is already married to a Spanish woman who is waiting for him back in Cuba. His wife, Catalina, actually comes to visit him in Mexico in 1522, but then dies of mysterious circumstances, <clears throat> strangulation, soon after. Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to 1519. With the help of Aguilar and La Malinche as translators, Cortes makes his way to the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. At the time, Moctezuma II was the Aztec emperor. And when Cortez's men roll up, they're actually received quite well by Moctezuma. No one is really sure why. One misconception is that the Aztecs mistook Cortez as Quetzalcoatl, a mythical figure, basically like a god, who was supposed to have light skin and a beard. And he was supposed to return to Mexico that same year. Now, this is probably not true at all. The Aztecs did not think Cortez was a god. <laughs> There's one account of their encounter in which Moctezuma lifted his shirt and proclaimed, quote, I am mortal blood as you are mortal blood. And then they exchanged gifts or whatever. So the whole mistook him for a god thing was probably made up later to help try to justify all the horrible things the Spanish did and make the Aztecs look dumb, basically. But Cortez and his men are received surprisingly well by Moctezuma. That part is true. So Cortez takes him captive pretty much immediately with basically no resistance. It's likely Cortez thought he could rule over the Aztecs through Moctezuma, like just whisper in Moctezuma's ear and his will would be done. But he miscalculated a bit there. The Aztec emperor was not like a Spanish king. Moctezuma did not have unconditional power. Maintaining the right to rule was based on how good of a ruler he was. He could easily be replaced by another noble if he proved a poor ruler. Which makes so much sense compared to the way it was done in Europe by birthright alone. So Moctezuma is held hostage. Giving Cortez orders, which mostly involves demanding tribute, like gold and silver, to be given to the Spanish. Yeah, Cortez is like a child with a genie, I swear. Like, I wish for gold, and also silver, and also more gold. Wait, is that all three wishes already? But Moctezuma's authority is slipping more and more. The Aztecs are like, kinda seems like our leader has become a puppet for these foreign invaders. Next. And they start to turn against him. But Cortez and his guys are holed up in the palace with their hostage, gathering riches, and trying to maintain control. 
Back in Cuba, Governor Velasquez is livid. Cortez blatantly defied his authority. He sends a commander named Panfilo de Narvaez with 19 ships, over 800 soldiers, 20 cannons, 80 horsemen, 120 crossbowmen, and some other fighter guys to go capture Cortez and bring him back to Cuba to answer for his crimes. But Cortez somehow hears about them landing in Mexico and takes around 300 men with him to Narvaez's camp to ambush them in the middle of the night in a surprise attack. Narvaez surrenders and is imprisoned in Veracruz, and the army he brought with him joins Cortez after he tells them about all the gold and riches back in Tenochtitlan. Meanwhile, in Tenochtitlan, Cortez had left a guy named Pedro de Alvarado in charge with around 80 soldiers. Alvarado turns out to be a real piece of work, this guy. At this time of year, the Aztecs usually have a festival to honor the god of war. The people ask Moctezuma for permission to hold the festival. And Alvarado is like, all right, sure, fine, whatever, as long as everyone is unarmed. And they're all like, wait, who even are you? But yeah, so Moctezuma is just a puppet right now, remember? So Alvarado is in charge while Cortez is off defeating his own countrymen. So Alvarado lets them hold their festival. They're all dressed up. They're singing and dancing. They all file into the courtyard of the great temple. And out of nowhere, the Spanish attack. Now, remember, the Aztecs are unarmed. That was Alvarado's only stipulation. There are many different theories as to why how this could possibly happen, but whatever the reason, the Spanish attack, blocking the exits to the courtyard and the temple and killing an estimated 10,000 unarmed Aztec festival goers. The rest of the Aztecs, not trapped and murdered in the temple courtyard, retaliate and Alvarado and his 80 men retreat to the palace and hide out until Cortez can get there. So Cortez now has his 300 men, plus all of Narvaez's men that were sent from Cuba to capture him, plus he has picked up around 2,000 Tlaxcalan warriors, which was a tribe that was rebelling against the Aztecs and so formed an alliance with the Spanish. And somehow Cortez is able to get into the palace in Tenochtitlan. I don't, I don't really know how. I mean, the Spanish are super outnumbered, but they do have superior weapons, guns and cannons and metal armor compared to the wooden clubs and spears the Aztecs were using. So I guess it kind of makes sense. I don't know. They just kind of gloss over that one. So Cortez basically traps himself in the palace with Alvarado in the hopes that he can fix the damage this dum-dum did while he was gone with the help of Moctezuma, who, of course, they have shackled up in the palace with them. But Cortez totally misjudged the seriousness of the situation. The massacre at the festival was the last straw for the Aztec people. They were now completely against the Spanish and Moctezuma. Cortez sends Moctezuma to tell the Aztecs to stop trying to kill them, and this does not go well. The Aztecs don't listen to Moctezuma anymore, and he is somehow killed in his attempts to negotiate peace. The Spanish claim the Aztecs killed him themselves. The Aztecs claim the Spanish murdered him when they realized he no longer had power and was no longer of any use to them and actually just a liability if let go. So that's still a mystery. But one way or another, Moctezuma is killed. So Cortez is still trapped in the palace, surrounded by hostile Aztecs. He knows he needs to get out of there. So on a moonless night during a heavy rainstorm, they sneak out of the castle. 
taking as much gold and other valuables as they can carry with them. They actually make it pretty far and are almost to the mainland when they're spotted. The Aztecs attack from canoes. The Spanish fire back, but they can't really see their attackers. Many jump into the water and quickly drown, weighed down by armor and gold that they were attempting to escape with. What's left of the Spanish and their indigenous allies managed to escape with over half of their men dead. It's a smashing victory for the Aztecs and would later be called La Noche Triste, or the Sad Night by the Spanish. Which, wah, Crimea River. So, Cortez has retreated and is licking his wounds. He knows he can't go back to Velasquez in Cuba. He can't go home to Spain. He defied Spanish authority and then attacked Spanish troops. He was very much a traitor at this point. The only way to redeem himself is to conquer the Aztec Empire in the name of Spain. It's the only way he'll be accepted back by the Spanish, welcomed as a hero even. So he focuses on gathering more and more indigenous allies before he attempts to conquer Tenochtitlan again. Meanwhile, back in Tenochtitlan, the Spanish have unknowingly unleashed a weapon of mass destruction on the city. They're in the midst of a smallpox epidemic. At least most experts assume it was smallpox. Smallpox was rampant in Europe, and many Europeans had developed natural immunities. Indigenous Americans, however, had never come into contact with the disease and therefore had no immunities whatsoever. Within a year, the disease had killed an estimated 40% of the population of Tenochtitlan and surrounding areas, including the new emperor, Cuitlahuac, which was Montezuma's little brother, who had only ruled for 80 days. So we have a major population reduction, a city in shambles, and no leadership in Tenochtitlan. It's suddenly not looking so good for the Aztecs, who would have crushed Cortes otherwise just based on their numbers alone. Cortes' plan is to trap the Aztecs within the city and basically starve them of resources and food. He still has very few Spanish soldiers. Remember, those numbers were completely decimated after La Noche Triste. Which, just a quick side note, because I keep saying triste instead of triste, but then I said Guerrero instead of Guerrero. I speak Spanish moderately well, so it feels wrong to say these Spanish names in an American accent, but then it sort of feels silly to say them correctly, too. So I don't know. I think it goes back to, so my mom speaks Spanish, too, but she's also from like a smallish town in rural North Carolina. So when we would go through the Taco Bell drive through she'd be like, hey there, I'd like a Crunchwrap Supreme and a quesadilla. Thank you. And I would be so embarrassed. So I should probably say everything correctly. It's just that childhood Taco Bell mom trauma holding me back. But anyways, Cortez has managed to gain some 50,000 indigenous allies from groups intent on destroying their violent Aztec overlords. So eventually, the Spanish forces have a stranglehold on Tenochtitlan. Famine starts to set in. As Cortez wins more and more battles, he gains more and more indigenous allies. On August 13, 1521, the Aztecs finally surrendered. Their new emperor is taken hostage and later executed. Cortez immediately starts asking that all the gold they lost during La Noche Triste 
be returned to him at once. I love how this guy is all, oh, I'm just going to go spread the word of God like Jesus says to do, like a good Christian. But actually gold. Where's the gold? Give us back the gold that we stole from you and then you stole back from us. You'd think that would be the end of the violence and hostility, right? They surrendered. Cortez won. No. Even after the surrender, the Spanish forces continued to attack and loot the city, slaughtering thousands of innocent people. When all was said and done, an estimated 240,000 Aztecs died during the siege. Most of the survivors were just small children. Now, this was not typical of European warfare. In Europe, a surrender was a surrender and the fighting stopped. This suggests that Cortes' indigenous allies probably had a lot more power over him than he wanted to acknowledge. Either that or he's just gone rogue again and broken with the European tradition of warfare, which I wouldn't put that past him. By the end, an estimated 200,000 indigenous allies helped Cortes and his skeleton crew of Spaniards defeat Tenochtitlan and really the entire Aztec Empire. However, they received almost no recognition for this. It was Cortes and his 500 men or whatever. No, the Spanish may have planned the attack, but they didn't do squat. It was 200,000 resentful and mistreated indigenous warriors that really defeated the Aztec Empire. Maybe the title of this episode is a bit misleading, but I had to hook you guys somehow, right? But in the end, it wasn't a victory for the indigenous people at all. There were several major allied groups and no one in particular was able to seize power after the fall of the Aztecs. So of course, the Spanish stepped in as they had always intended to do. The Spanish government was simply delighted with Cortes now, quickly pardoning the fact that he was a mutinous traitor who had defied authority and completely gone rogue. But the fall of the Aztec Empire raked in 7,000 tons of riches for Spain, plus secured them a foothold in Central America. These riches would help fund later expeditions and conquests of South America. Spain became a major world power, the major world power. Cortes was named governor of New Spain, and Mexico City was built on top of the ruins of Tenochtitlan. So it's looking pretty good for the Spanish right now. What about their indigenous allies? They certainly hope to get something out of this, too. What of their spoils? Well, as Spain gained control of the region, the indigenous people were forced into subservient roles and a caste-like society formed in which the Europeans became the upper class and the natives were the lower class. But of course, you saw that coming, right? This disparate social dynamic characterized Mexico for centuries and really continues to this day. Of the 26 million indigenous people still living in Mexico today, 75% of them live in extreme poverty. It's an ongoing issue. So what happened to Cortes? Well, we know he was made governor of New Spain, which was what we call Mexico today. In 1524, he headed down to Honduras, where he established a city and stayed for two years. But when he returned to Mexico, the dudes he'd left in charge had completely turned against him, and he was removed from power. Which, yeah, I mean, I kind of get it. It's 
pretty hard to govern a city when you haven't actually set foot in it for two years. So Cortes goes back to Spain to plead with King Charles I, who just keeps popping up, this guy. Remember, Charles was the son of Juana of Castile from the Mad Kings episode, the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. He's the one who helped stop the Catholic Church from granting Henry VIII's divorce. Yeah, this is like all going down at the same time. Episodes are colliding here. But Cortez is never made a governor of anything again. He does manage to remarry while he's in Spain, because remember, his first wife died under mysterious circumstances when she came to visit him in Mexico. This was while he was enjoying an extramarital relationship with his enslaved indigenous translator, La Malenche. La Malenche is a very controversial character in this story, even to this day. An indigenous woman turned translator for the Spanish turned mistress of Cortez, mother of his child. According to a New York Times article called After 500 Years, Cortez's Girlfriend is Not Forgiven, quote, La Malinche has become a symbol of a nation that is still not entirely comfortable with either its European or Indian roots. Some Mexican feminists say she is even at the root of much of the disdain Mexican men display toward Mexican women, expressed in the country's high rates of infidelity and domestic violence. So, yikes. It goes on to say, La Malinche is for the most part portrayed as the perpetrator of Mexico's original sin and as a cultural metaphor for all that is wrong with Mexico. And I mean, I get it. Mexico has issues. There are gender issues. There are racial issues. There are poverty issues. I get it. But can we not blame it all on this poor woman? Yes, she helped Cortez defeat the Aztecs and establish Spanish dominance in Mexico. But so did Moctezuma. So did 200,000 other indigenous allies. Why are they not cultural metaphors for all that is wrong with Mexico? La Malinche, or Malinali, which was her actual name, was a captive enslaved girl when she was gifted to Cortez. It's not clear whether her family gave her up to slavery or she may have been kidnapped as a child, but from a young age, Malinali was enslaved. She was bought and sold, forced to work for various enslavers, very likely sexually abused. When Cortez realized her value as a translator, he took her as his personal slave. Yes, she helped him take Mexico, but how much of a choice did she really have? She was enslaved. She had to obey her enslaver. It's not like she could have just told him no, and he'd be like, well, darn, okay. But I don't know. Maybe she was down to help Cortez. I mean, could you blame her for that? I can't imagine she had much affection for the society that had enslaved and exploited her since she was a child. The Aztecs were the ones who enslaved her to begin with. So I don't know. I'm I'm not on board with the demonization of La Malinche with pinning all of the horrible things that happened squarely on her shoulders. For some reason, this happens to women a lot. A man who did what she did, no one would bat an eye. But when it's a woman, she suddenly becomes this cultural symbol of evil and deceit. She's evil, an evil woman. Look what she did. Really, though? I have a lot to say about the psychology behind that recurring phenomenon of demonizing women, and it has a lot to do with systemic patriarchal oppression of women, going all the way back to the Bible with Eve succumbing to temptation in the Garden of Eden. I could unpack it for you more, but y'all are probably getting pretty tired of the subject. If it wasn't so darn prevalent throughout all of history, I wouldn't keep bringing it up. 
Now, I am not Mexican or Spanish or Maya or Aztec or any other Mesoamerican indigenous group, so maybe I don't even know what I'm talking about. It's obviously still complicated, and there's clearly a lot of hurt reverberating from the events that went down 500 years ago. But let's not pin it all on this one woman. I think part of what makes this all so complicated and emotionally charged, even to this day, is that the conquest by the Spanish and the destruction and oppression of the indigenous people of Mexico and Central America is clearly wrong. It's disgusting what the Europeans did. It's reprehensible. But what makes it complicated is that the Aztecs weren't saints either. They were a ruthless, violent, oppressive force in the region, and they made plenty of enemies before the Spanish even arrived. I'm not trying to take any of the blame away from Cortes and the Spanish conquistadors, but the Aztecs weren't great candidates as rulers of the realm either. What's so sad about this story is the fate of the indigenous allies who rose up to defeat the Aztecs in the hopes that they could establish a better civilization, a better world after the fall. And it almost feels like the Spanish double-crossed them after taking Tenochtitlan. Like they, they just imported all of their own nobles, governors, colonists from Europe, New Spain, right? And pushed the indigenous people down and down and down into the lowest pits of society, pits that they still struggle to climb out of today. So they cling to the demonized characters, villains like La Malinche, because they need to blame someone. It's all so unfair. Mexican poet Octavio Paz summed it up nicely in his book, The Labyrinth of Solitude, when he said, quote, The strange permanence of Cortez and La Malinche in the Mexicans' imagination and sensibilities reveals that they are something more than historical figures. They are symbols of a secret conflict that we have still not resolved, end quote. 500 years later, and it's still not resolved. This is why the choices we make today, the things we do, the actions we take, they're so important. It's so important that we act justly, that we act honorably, ego aside, we treat people with respect. We put people above glory and fame, above gold and riches, because what we do today matters. We are affecting people 500 years from now. We are making their history right now. And I don't know about you, but I don't want it to still not be resolved for them. Thank you all so very much for listening to History Fix. I hope you found this story interesting and maybe you even learned something new. Be sure to follow my Instagram at History Fix Podcast to see some images that go along with this episode and to stay on top of new episodes as they drop. I'd also really appreciate it if you'd rate and follow this podcast on whatever app you're using to listen. That'll make it much easier to get your next fix. Information used in this episode was sourced from History.com, New World Encyclopedia, Live Science, the Houston Institute for Culture, the New York Times, New York Historical Society, ThoughtCo.com, BizarreAndGrotesque.com, and The Borgen Project. Links to all these sources can be found in the show notes.